Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. He konai purangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Science has driven innovation in application. If you don't do blue sky science, you don't innovate. It's just that simple. And innovation is what gets us to solving problems. We can't solve problems without innovation. We have to be ready to do that and we have to be ready to invest in something that at the time of investment may appear to be completely superfluous to all of the problems of the world but in the end you never know when an application is going to appear for a solution that was blue sky at the time Kyora and welcome to our changing world Ko Claire Kincannon Tene that was the voice of Craig Carey from the University of Waikato. He's passionate about the need for blue sky science, research that builds on scientific theories, but which might not yet have a clear use. Research that provides solutions to obvious and immediate problems, applied science, well, that feels really satisfying. And lately, we've all had exposure to this. The drug company Pfizer has developed a 90% effective COVID-19 vaccine. The but here's the thing. Science is a process of finding new knowledge, but through building on a foundation of existing knowledge. Before you can run, you need to learn to walk. Before you can rapidly sequence viral genomes to determine what variant of the coronavirus is around you, you need someone to have developed sequencing technology that's robust and fast enough. And even before that, you need someone to have figured out the makeup and structure of DNA and RNA. You need someone asking and answering fundamental questions to set that foundation of knowledge without necessarily knowing what the application of that knowledge will be. Today, two stories spanning this spectrum of science, from blue sky research to an applied solution for a visible and immediate problem. Later, Katie Gossett visits engineers in the University of Canterbury to watch testing of a new and cheaper way to protect houses from getting shook up during the next big earthquake. But first, Craig tells me about why he is so excited to be part of a team that has been awarded a three-year Human Frontier Science Programme grant, and what big blue sky research question they will be trying to answer with this project. Now, Craig studies bacteria in the environment, specifically those bacteria that live in extreme environments. So... Although we are sitting in his office in Hamilton, next to microbiology labs with biohazard signs and scientists working diligently away, this story starts somewhere else, about 20 years ago. In a sense, it, it actually starts in the deep ocean, and it starts at a hydrothermal vent. The vents have some pretty unusual bacteria, deep ocean, hydrothermal vents, high temperature, lots of sulfur in the in the system, lots of energy, 
a lot of bacteria that are able to use chemical energy and generate carbon from that and therefore are able to survive under these systems. And we isolated one down there. I was working on something completely different and we isolated one and it was quite unique. This interesting bacterium that Craig found is in the phylum, which is like a name for a massive grouping called proteobacteria. And it's in the class, which is a smaller grouping, called epsilon. So an epsilon proteobacterium. But, he tells me, they are not just found in hydrothermal vents. This is a big group, and they are found in many places, including the guts of animals and in humans. But the most important thing about this particular bacterium is to do with their flagellum a little motor made up of proteins that allows bacteria to move about. And movement in bacteria is really important. And a lot of people don't get it about that, but bacteria are really a sensing machine. They're a little biosensor that's swimming around trying to find things. And it's sensors that coat the outside of the cell, control the flagellum, like a shark follows a scent towards its prey, the bacteria will do exactly the same thing, sensing a trail of energy in this case or something that it needs in following that concentration gradient. So it it allows it to explore and move within its own little system, which is tiny, tiny, but within its own system to be able to find the molecules necessary for it to thrive and divide. But not all flagella are the same. And this interesting hydrothermal vent bacterium that Craig found all those years ago seems to represent an interesting bit of the puzzle of how the flagellum, this super important thing for bacteria, evolves. Epsilon proteobacteria are a class of proteobacteria. They're from a diversity of different habitats. They've got quite diverse genomes and quite diverse capabilities. Some can utilize sulfur as an energy source, and they live in aerobic, anaerobic situations. So they're all over the board. What makes them really kind of unique is, for our purpose, is the flagellum that they have is quite interesting because there's within the epsilon proteobacteria, they seem to have acquired multiple new proteins in that structure to enable that structure. This is a high-torque little motor that moves. This is a nanomachine, and they've acquired various adaptations that have enabled that to work better. And so the, the beauty of the epsilons is this real nice focal group as a model for looking at flagella evolution because there's all different conformations of the proteins that are necessary for that are found in the epsilon proteobacteria. So it's, it's a it's really good model for this, for this question. As Craig was talking about flagellum, I kept thinking about Lego. I think probably because of old textbook diagrams I remember of bacterial flagellum. So they've got these little protein components that fit together to make these little motors that spin and move the bacteria forward. They're pretty neat, actually. Like, nanomachines is a good description. There are parts that look like rods and collars and cogs. And so when I was thinking about this in Lego, what's interesting here is whether the flagellum design is evolving by making little changes to individual Lego bricks that all add up. 
or whether at some stages there's this big addition of a bespoke new Lego piece that just upgrades the flagellum in one big evolutionary move and then becomes key to its function. The question is, is how did that complexity evolve? And does it happen like Darwin would like in small steps and you move up? Or has there been punctuated evolutionary steps where you go from one confirmation to a much more advanced or much more efficient confirmation. The problem is there's no fossils for these guys. This type of evolution, there's no record for it. But there is possibly at the molecular level, at the cellular, molecular, kind of biophysics level, there may be a record of that evolution. And that's what we're trying to really get at, is to understand whether this was a progressive process or whether it actually there are major leaps in that evolution. And what caused those leaps and because very often those proteins come in and they are not essential at the beginning because it's been obviously operating fine before that but they jump in there and you know within some period of time they become essential and one of the big questions is what drives a protein that kind of jumped in there and is kind of helping out to become an essential because if you pull it out it doesn't work anymore it's not like you pull it out and and it goes back to working the way it did before and so the group that we've got together has um, myself, but it obviously it has somebody who's an evolutionary biologist, a structural biologist, a biomechanics person, somebody who's really into biophysics. You can't do or answer this question individually. So tell me about your part in this big, <laughs> wide research project. What's, what? So, so um, yeah, I'm the biodiscovery guy <laughs> on this project. So... My my job, or the job of my postdoc, because there, there will be a postdoc on this project, literally our job is to go out and find the missing links out there in the world. There's some wonderful science that's been going on probably for the last 10 years, but it's been ramping up the last five years, which is the ability to get DNA sequence from environmental DNA. So we can go out and sample anywhere on the planet and we can get the DNA, all the DNA, whatever organisms are in there, bacteria, whatever's in that sample. We can extract the DNA from the sample and we can sequence it. And we can sequence it at such a level now that we can begin to understand a little bit about the entire community's genetic capability. This is called a metagenome. So this is taking an entire community of organisms and sequencing everything and then looking at that. So you can take a metagenome, and people have been doing this, and there are literally thousands and thousands of metagenomes that have been done around the world. And all of this information, or a lot of this information, these metagenomes, this is all DNA sequences, are available publicly. So we can literally sit in our office and scan the planet for epsilon proteobacteria and for the flagella containing epsilon proteobacteria. When we identify these, then we can, well, we'll have the genetic information so we can play with that, so we can start to reconstruct the flagellum of an organism that we never even saw. Or, and probably better, we'll go to that place and get a sample and bring it back and try to isolate and culture that epsilon proteobacteria because we need to have functional flagella. 
we can do some things with the, the sequence, but we need to have the functional organism. So that's our big challenge. Sitting in the office scanning the planet from a computer does seem less adventurous than collecting samples from deep ocean hydrothermal vents, but also way more efficient. Because when you sample somewhere like the vents, you almost never get a pure bacterium sample. You get a mixture of many types of bacteria. When you culture or grow the bacteria, you put it in some media, a liquid that contains a mixture of all the things that bacteria needs to grow and divide. Which, of course, depends on the bacteria. Maybe it needs sulfur or nitrogen or carbon. Maybe it likes oxygen. Maybe it doesn't like oxygen. Maybe it needs wet or dry or hot or cold and so on. So you would try to select for the specific bacterium you want to study by using special media and conditions. But if you've only just scooped up the bacteria and are growing it to sequence it, then you kind of don't know that much about it. Working from environmental DNA and metagenomics flips this script. The epsilon that I got from the hydrothermal vent, that's exactly how we did it. We went out down there, got a sample, brought it up, tried multiple different types of media, and ended up with a bug that we were excited about. And we sequenced the genome of that. Now, well, you can kind of circumvent the whole cultivation thing. You can get a metagenome, and now with supercomputers, we can actually go into a a mixed population of bacteria. There could be a thousand, ten thousand different bacteria in there, and we can reconstruct the genome. Maybe not the entire genome, but almost the entire genome. I and mean, we're getting up to 98% of a genome of an organism that has never been grown, has never been seen, and we're able to pull it out using bioinformatics and supercomputers. These are called metagenome assembled genomes, mags. And you can get these mags and you're actually after maybe a week of supercomputer dealing with it, spits back to you maybe a dozen, you know, 99% complete genomes. And you're looking at the organism without ever culturing. Now, the cool thing about that is that you can begin to look at that genome, see what's in it, and the actual recipe for growing the thing is embedded in that genome. And so what you can do is you can begin to construct the media that you need to grow that organism on by virtue of looking to see what its genome tells you it needs. Oh, and that's okay. called genome-informed cultivation. Because the genome will tell you what it likes to live on, what it breaks down, what nutrition it needs. Absolutely. I mean, it, it gives you some information doesn't give you all the information because it doesn't tell you a lot about gases. It doesn't tell you a lot about, you know, there's micronutrients um, that would, amino acids. There are certain things that it it's really difficult to get out of it. But it gets you a lot closer than if you're just looking at, you know, just say, well, we're going to try an epsilon proteobacterium medium because invariably that won't work. Mm -hmm. And so you have to try a bunch of different things before you can actually get to the place that you can, you'll get an organism. And believe it or not, there's a huge amount of luck in this. But um, it, the crossover between using metagenomes and genomes and cultivation, that triangulation is what my lab does. The Human Frontier Science Program funds innovative basic research into biological problems. 
it's a pot of money specifically to support these high-risk, possible high-reward, but we may not know of that reward maybe for a very long time, this kind of blue-sky research. And that really excites Craig. It's something he really believes in. Blue-sky science doesn't have to have a reason. It doesn't have to have an endpoint. It doesn't have to solve a social problem. And I know a lot of people have difficulty in understanding why funding might be pushed towards something that has no application. But I think what people have to realize, and it took me a while to realize it, that is that everything that we do, every fabric we carry, every food that we eat, every analysis we run, every process we do as a society, if you boil it down to its basics, it lies in blue sky science. Thanks to Craig Carey of the University of Waikato. Next, to the applied end, protecting homes from earthquakes. Base isolation has generally been considered an expensive system used mainly in commercial buildings. But University of Canterbury engineers have developed a safe, low-cost model that could work in our homes. Katie Gossett visited the university to watch the new system get tested. So we're putting on our uh, PPE gear, which includes uh, hard cap or safety shoes. And, um... That's Professor Tim Sullivan, prepping me to enter a lab at Canterbury University's Department of Civil and Natural Resources Engineering. Just watch your feet and don't touch any of the machinery. This vast area has an assortment of engineering projects, but right in the middle is a little house, the house that Tim built, or at least had a builder make for him. So there's nothing special about what we've put on top, it's really just representing a normal house. We've got a builder to come in and just build it the traditional way they would do housing. Actually, it's more like a part of a house that Tim built, a traditional white plastered building like any modern home you'd see today. So what we were really looking at here is a room of a house, but you can see some steel plates put on the roof there. That's extra mass to reproduce uh, essentially a roof? A, a roof, the weight of a roof, and a whole system which has a period of vibration, which is the time it takes for a building to oscillate from one side to the other, which is an important characteristic for a building if you're looking at earthquake loading. So the period of vibration of our system is representative of typical new houses. And underneath the little room... Now, this building's got an innovative design where we've got these base isolation devices, these cost-effective devices. You can see them there in yellow. They have a sort of a, a puck which sits on top of a steel plate. And then in the big concrete slab there, we've got steel plates cast into the slab. And the surface of those steel plates is such that it has low friction with the puck. So under an earthquake, what we'll see, and we'll be doing some testing shortly, you'll see the slab sliding back and forth. So this is the base isolation system for the room of the house that Tim built, in the hope that his team can make homes that better survive earthquakes, like the devastating sequence that struck Canterbury a decade ago. It began with a 7.1 magnitude quake near Darfield in September 2010. Buildings were affected, but there was no loss of life. But then came the 6.3 on February the 22nd, 2011. Radio New Zealand News at one o'clock. 
There have been reports of a huge earthquake in Christchurch. Just incredibly intense shaking. We were all literally clinging on to our death. 6.3, 10 kilometres south of Christchurch. People reporting it as worse than the September shake. Further down the street, I can see a facade has come down. It's an absolute frickin' mess. This is going to cost a bomb. The impact of the earthquakes on Christchurch has been well documented. 185 people lost their lives in the February quake, many in the central city and in two large commercial properties, the PGC and CTV buildings. On the whole, residential properties held up better. There were fewer lives lost, but many homes themselves were severely damaged. We begin tonight in Christchurch with a man who said he went to EQC, then the government, with documentary evidence that serious damage had been missed. One in five Canterbury homeowners with quake-damaged houses will have to wait until 2015 for them to be repaired. Many across Christchurch and the Canterbury region have been waiting, waiting to get their homes repaired. And that's left its own legacy. Tim Sites reserve bank figures that indicate the Canterbury earthquakes cost $40 billion in losses. Of those, about $16 billion were in the residential sector. Of those $16 billion, around half, they say, was actually ground-induced damage, like liquefaction, which this won't solve, so you would still need to have good ground. However, the other half of the $16 billion is still a lot of loss, and that was also the major number of claims. So the, the process of recovery post-earthquake is obviously a lot longer if we've got lots of houses being damaged. Even if it's a small amount of damage, it was quite stressful for homeowners to have to go through. And that got Tim wondering if there was something he could do about that. He was already involved in Quake Corps. New Zealand has a few corps. Those are centres of research excellence, and Quake Corps is concerned with earthquake resilience. Tim's been leading work on next-generation infrastructure and collaborating with other researchers on low-damage building solutions, again, mainly for large public buildings. But not much was happening when it came to people's homes. Our residential buildings perform really well in terms of life safety. People didn't tend to get killed because the houses fall on them, right? But we did get a lot of costly disruption and repairs required. So we thought, well, can we do something which is low damage for our houses? There are international precedents. Tim cites Japan as a place where there are a number of base-isolated homes, and California has also run a research project into the technology. But we have slightly different housing construction approaches. We've got quite intense wind loading that we need to deal with. We thought we could use some of the technology, the approaches that have been used and developed internationally, but there was still a challenge of trying to get something which is low cost for New Zealand. So what did they come up with? Well, in the lab, Tim is able to show me how the team can replicate actual earthquakes to test what this little house can cope with. What you're looking at here on the blue on the base is what we call a shake table. It's got a hydraulic actuator and it can reproduce the motions of an earthquake. So we've got recordings of historical earthquakes, like the 2010 Darfield earthquake, and we've got recordings of the Littleton earthquake, the 22nd February. The one we're about to see just now is a simulation of an alpine fault earthquake. We've got a number of researchers in the university who are able to reproduce essentially the, the motion of the ground that would be caused by 
a large earthquake on the Alpine Fault, for example. At a certain distance, they then tell us what the motion of the shaking would be, and we can take that motion and now run it through the shake table and see how our base-isolated house would work in that simulated event. So we're about to see that now. Everything all right, Tom? Yeah, all good. That's Tom Francis, who's been working on this project for his PhD. He wasn't in Canterbury for some of those first big earthquakes, but he has seen what they did firsthand. Just looking at the ground motions that we're putting through the shake table, you can see just how intense and how scary it would have been to be close to the epicentre of some of those earthquakes. So one of the ground motions that we're running is quite close to the epicentre of the Darfield earthquake, which is where one of my friends has got a house, and their house was quite severely damaged in the earthquakes. But when we run it through with our system, there's, we've shown there's pretty much no damage at all. So it's cool to see how that technology will have an effect on real-life people. In the past, many houses were built to withstand earthquakes, but not necessarily without damage. And it's understandable that when disaster strikes, we're often just glad to have survived. But Tom hopes that future buildings will not only protect people, they'll also withstand the kind of damage that's caused so much heartache for Cantabrians. We're hoping to take all that out of it and just let people get on with their lives. Essentially, as soon as the earthquake finishes, you don't have to worry about anything. And now it's time to test the theory. And what we're hoping to see is that the table's moving and then you'll see the yellow supports underneath the concrete slab moving relative to the concrete slab. And that's essentially showing us the, the sliding going on between the concrete slab and the, the isolators. And so they unleash the Alpine Fault earthquake. There's a bit of machinery noise and then actually not much to see. As someone who's been here through most of the region's earthquakes, including the September and February ones, the impact of this test on the room itself is, well, underwhelming, in a good way. In other words, as the ground motion is passed through it, the room slides back and forth on the base isolation system smoothly, but with no audible cracking or smashing of any sort. To be fair, this is one of the lower magnitude readings and the team will gradually work up to testing the more significant shakes. But it's a positive sign. What is happening is the table's moving below at high speed while the building above is sort of basically not moving. It moves a little bit, but not as much as it would have if we'd had a big earthquake with a traditional house. So we've been running quite a few ground motions already and we haven't got any damage whereas the same sort of motions in the Canterbury earthquakes and so on was causing quite a lot of damage. Once the shake table stops moving, the team prepares to climb inside the house and have a good look to see if there's been any damage. What we're looking for is after the earthquakes, often we would get damage to the plasterboard walls and you'd get cracks around windows and cracks in the corners. We're just going to check now if there is any cracking. We don't expect there will be, but after each run we go through and we just check whether there is any signs of damage or distress. Once we get inside the house, we can't spot any cracking, but there are other ways to measure what's moved. You see these wires, these strings? They're attached to gauges, and they're measuring the displacements of the concrete slab. And we've also got gauges on the plasterboard walls themselves, telling us how much the walls themselves are deforming, how much is the roof displacing relative to the concrete slab. So provided we can keep that displacement of the roof relative to the concrete slab low, we'll be avoiding damage in the plasterboard walls. 
Of course, the other type of damage that we got during the earthquakes that really upset people was the damage to our contents. But this technology could help with that too. The isolation device is essentially cutting the acceleration that can be transferred through the slab. Because as soon as the acceleration gets high but on the ground, that's when the slab starts to slide relative to the ground. And so we really limit the amount of acceleration we put on our contents up above. But there are other challenges ahead. On the face of it, the team has achieved what it set out to do. We're able to run recordings of strong ground motions through our system and show that our system's not getting damaged. So neither the devices nor the, the plasterboard walls or the ceilings and so on, the, the actual house itself is going through those large events without any signs of damage which is a really good outcome. But the next step is finding a way to make it accessible to homeowners. And part of that is the financial side of things. Base isolation has mainly been used in New Zealand for large commercial buildings because it's not cheap. But Tim Sullivan is hoping to get that cost down. The challenge, I guess, is that those solutions add cost to your initial built cost. Some estimate that cost is around, say, 3% of the building cost overall, some say a bit higher. But the devices themselves are quite expensive and all the costs count. And so really when we're coming to housing, what can we do that would be low cost in terms of base isolation? What we're aiming for is to try and develop the system to be no more than $15,000 to actually have it built and installed base isolated house, which we think is hopefully not too much to put people off. Long term, Tim believes the model could be applied to medium density housing to help with the housing shortage. And ultimately, he'd like to see the option available to more and more homeowners, including himself. I feel really good about it. Like, I'm hoping that if in five years this system's been developed right, I'll have my own house on base isolation. It's a much better system for resisting earthquake events. Thanks so much to Katie and the University of Canterbury engineers she spoke to. Tim Sullivan and Tom Francis. This episode was produced by Katie Gossett and me, Claire Kincannon. Sound engineering was by Alex Harmer and Phil Benj. Tim Watkin is executive producer. Keep up to date with new Our Changing World episodes by following the show. You can do this for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeart, or wherever you like to listen to podcasts. In the show's website at rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworlds has some photos, the option to subscribe to our newsletter, and a whole back catalogue of hundreds of episodes. And if you want to get in touch with us, we're on Facebook or Twitter at RNZ Science. There are lots of other great podcasts on RNZ to explore. Click on the Podcasts and Series tab to have a look. For example, Fragments, produced and hosted by Katie Gossett, It's a six-part podcast series about the day of the 2011 earthquake in Christchurch and what has happened in the decade since. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Claire Kincannon and I'll be back next week. Kia pai tō wiki. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. 
For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. 